Welcome to this edition of What's the Score? Let me remind you, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please click the like button wherever you listen to this program. And if you'd like to support this and future programs, I encourage you to become a patron via patreon.com. There'll be details to follow in the middle of the program. We couldn't do the program without our patrons, so thank you. And enjoy today's wonderful podcast. Today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of one of our guests today. Now, I say one because we're going to have multiple guests. Why is that? Well, today's episode is a little different. I'm very proud to say, and happy to say, that this is our 100th episode. So we're going to do a retrospective and uh, play some uh, clips from past guests and some of their favorite cues. I must tell you, it's uh, been a joy to kind of go through the archives and listen to all those past interviews, at least parts of them. But I also must tell you, it's been extremely difficult to figure out what to include and what not to include. So many terrific guests. I, uh, If you'd have told me three or four years ago that I would have done 100 episodes of this and it would have had some actors and directors and composers musicians, people like that to appear on my show, I'd have told you, eh, I don't know, I'm going to have a hard time finding people to be guests. And while it has been at times difficult, I've been pleasantly surprised at the willingness of a lot of people to uh, come on the show. I hope that you enjoy the choices that I've made, but I also hope that uh, for those of you out there that maybe are avid listeners, that you're not disappointed that I didn't choose this show or that show. And, it's, and of course, the guests themselves, I hope they aren't disappointed if they weren't chosen to be on here. Uh, it's not meant to be a slight at all. It's just uh, hard to kind of fit it all into a reasonable time frame to give a representation of some of the people that we've talked to. So with that, you don't want to hear from me. Let's hear from some of our guests and see what they have to share with us in terms of film music and also the music they wanted to share with the listeners. Let's start. When I started this program, it was actually uh, on a obscure internet radio station out of New York. 
And it was just me playing various cues and those sorts of things, and it was fine. But I just felt like it could be so much better. And then I decided to go ahead and launch, as a podcast on my own, the show called What's the Score? And I had listened to a few episodes of a show called Desert Island Discs. It was a show out of the UK on the BBC radio. And I said, that's what I want to do, something like that. And so I can't take credit for the format. It's actually kind of loosely based on uh, on Desert Island Discs. And so I started to uh, look for a guest to have on the program. One of the first guests I was able to secure, I was just so delighted with it, uh, composer George Clinton. Uh, he's done a lot of major films. Uh, two of note would be things like Wild Things or uh, The Santa Claus 2. Uh, and many others. He also recently is a uh, a concerto called the Rose of Sonora, which is uh, something if you have a chance if an orchestra is performing that in your town, you should go and attend it. But anyway, one of the things I was really impressed with was the amount of work that George put into our uh, show, the preparation that he did. Uh, it was so amazing, all the work that he did, we ended up dividing it into two different episodes. What I want to play for you is a couple of clips from uh, that show. The first one of which is that we talked a little bit about the process of uh, scoring a film and, uh, and also how it's changed over the years. And then we play a cue of, uh, that George wanted to share after that. Uh, let's have a listen. You know, it's interesting. It occurs to me that, that you're, you're one of the last people in terms of pieces of the puzzle that comes in when everybody else has finished their job. It, uh, it's, is that is that put a lot of pressure on you sometimes with the uh, you know hey everybody else is all finished now it's up to you pal yeah i think it uh, it is a lot of pressure i think one of the things you have to come to term with terms with and maybe even thrive on to some extent is the fact that you're put under the gun uh, nowadays not only are you put under the gun because the the deadlines have gotten shorter um, when i started out because there were no uh, there wasn't such a thing as digital editing and film right. I was edited on film and so if they wanted to see a special effect on film they had to wait for it to come to be created and previewed at the um, whatever the optical house and that that would give me at least an extra week of writing and that's no longer the case so you know it's that has gotten shortened and then you also are coming into a situation where They've been on this film for a long time, and a lot of the uh, battle lines have been drawn. And so you have to kind of gingerly, you know, figure out where the toes are buried and, uh, <laughs> and hope, hope that you don't step on them uh, as, you, as you do your job. And the third thing that makes it much more of a pressure nowadays is usually when you come on to a film, they've already got what they call a temporary score in place. A temporary score is a score that they put in before they hire the composer to do original music to get a sense of what the film, how the film is doing. And a right. lot of times they'll actually, uh, they'll actually um, show the film to uh, an audience with the temporary score in it. And then when you're hired to do it, they either love the score or they hate the score. And so um, when they hate the score, I love it. The, the temporary score because then <laughs> I get to do whatever I want. But if they love the score, then I'm faced with the additional pressure of having to do it my way and yet satisfy the, um, 
the musical sort of addiction they they've come across they've come into from having heard this temp, temp score in there for so long was there uh, i don't want to get too deep in the woods on this but for temp tracks did there seem to always be like one or two composers that were used more than another or was it just you know any, any number of things that were used for temp tracks well i think if you talk to any composer in hollywood uh one of the, the things they've come up against time and time again is Tommy Newman. Tommy, Tommy Newman's music is just so adaptable. Huh. You could put it under um, a funny scene. You could put it under uh, a sexy scene. You could put it under uh, an emotional scene. There's something about his music that's like an emotional sponge and or uh, it just seems or an emotional chameleon. It adapts to that moment. And um, and uh, and as such, it's really great for people who are looking, uh, you know, for temp scores because it gives them a chance to not have it go too far, too dark or too light or too anything. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I love that. Um, the next one on your list was another composition of yours. This comes from a uh, a film called Joe Somebody. You know, the title of the cue is is the kiss. This sounds interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, Joe Somebody is a movie where Tim Allen plays this uh, kind of uh, nobody, really, at a big corporation. And he's bullied by a guy over a parking space, and he challenges him to a fight. And then starts training with John Bellucci uh, to to beat this guy up. <laughs> it's like a you know, kid <laughs> in school. And he decides he has the strength not to fight this guy. And along the way he sort of falls in love with this woman and she falls in love with him. And, you know, the love theme, what I like to do with a love theme is I go to the place where it needs to be its fullest. As in, in this case, it was where they kiss for the first time. And it was towards the end of the movie. And I write that cue. And then I go back and, and, and sort of fill in the places where they're falling in love with less developed versions of the cue that I've now written that I know that, that they have to get to. Okay. So it gives us something to shoot for this particular scene. As I said, there, towards the end of the movie. He decides not to fight. Um, she's, you know, finally confesses how much she in love she is with him. And finally they kiss and see if you can find, see if you can determine where the, if the music's telling you where their lips meet, uh, where they actually finally kiss. Okay, let's uh, let's give our listeners a chance to check that out. This is a uh, a cue from the movie uh, Joe Somebody, and it's called The Kiss.
The next thing George and I talked about was uh, one of his favorite scores happened to be a film called Somewhere in Time, written by John Barry. So he talked a little bit about uh, his impressions of that, and here's that conversation followed by uh, the main title from Somewhere in Time. I, I got to imagine that it's hard to sometimes separate what's going on in your life from from your work, especially since you're, you know, into drama and and writing for that. And the reason why I bring that up piece for I'll never forget I went uh, an event that was tied to a celebration of John Barry's music at uh, in, at uh, Carnegie Hall. And there was a short Q&A that they did in the afternoon before the performances at night. And someone asked and pointed out, uh, you know, I know that you wrote somewhere in time uh, right after both your parents had died six weeks apart. Did did, did that influence, you know, how you went about scoring the movie? To, to which he replied, none of your damn business. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, but you know, having said that, it's hard, it's hard not to separate that. Is that hard sometimes when life is happening around you to be able to separate that from what you're trying to create? It certainly is. <laughs> we just had our daughter and I was working on a, a film and we were watching uh, Sesame Street, you know, with her. <laughs> she was old enough to watch Sesame Street. And I had written this beautiful love theme and I like to play my stuff for my wife and get her feedback. And I said, I played it for her, for, for her and it went, da da dee da Da, da, dee, da, dee, da, and she said, it's Elmo's theme. I said, what? <laughs> Elmo's song from Sesame Street. You just slowed it down. <laughs> Thank God I hadn't played it for the director yet. Oh, my. Well, he probably wouldn't have known. <laughs> but someone out there would have known. Somebody would have known. You know, um, the uh, Somewhere in Time, uh, one of the things I found interesting, I was looking, you know, it's a 1980 film. But actually, um, Jane Seymour suggested him, uh, the actress in it, who was a personal friend of his. And until then, the, uh, the, uh, the producers were thinking of just having that Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini, uh -huh. you know, which is used in the film a lot. But uh, they were just thinking of that being um, the only thing in there. And uh, instead of a fee... Uh, it says John Barry took a percentage of the royalties on the soundtrack, which went on to become his best-selling film score. So yes. <laughs> that was a pretty clever move on his part. Good move, good move. Yeah, it, it, this was, it was interesting. It was a film that did not do particularly well at the box office, but it has grown in popularity over the years. I just love um, it. Unab unabashedly, I am in tears. You know, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's quite amazing. Let's... um. Let's listen to this. Uh, I, I believe, yeah, I believe it's the main main theme from the movie Somewhere in Time, written by John Barry.
Another guest I was excited to talk to was a composer, arranger, and an amazing musician by the name of John Altman. I think his biggest claim to fame might have been the Monty Python song, uh, Look on the Bright Side of Life. Uh, but he worked on lots of films and scored lots of films. And he had an interesting story about his work uh, on a James Bond film. This was in 1995. The film was called Goldeneye. And rather than tell you what happened, I'll let him explain it. So here's a clip from that episode where John explains exactly his contribution to the film. Uh, and then we uh, play his contribution immediately after that. Enjoy. And it was a rather unusual way to become aware of you. I, uh, as my a lot of my listeners will know, I'm a I'm a, a huge. First of all, I'm a huge John Barry fan. I mean, like over the top Barry fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that I also happen to be a, a very very much a James Bond fan. Right. And and I don't mean to speak despairingly of anybody, but in fact, I even went to the. I was very fortunate to go to the world premiere of Goldeneye uh, in. Uh, New York. I was there. And oh, were you really? Oh, wow. Yeah. It uh, yeah. and uh, I, I know what they were trying to do, and I actually like some of his work. Uh, Eric Serra is who I'm talking about, the composer. But if, for me, just being kind of like an old time Bond fan, I just oh, gosh, it the score really wasn't working for me. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, when this tank chase happened, it was like the whole music changed. And I said, "This guy's brilliant." He finally. <laughs> He's, he, all right, now he's really captured the sound. That's what we need. And it wasn't until I think months later that I found out that uh, the one piece that Eric did not compose and work on was that very tank chase, uh, which I thought, oh, I thought was fabulous. I just loved it. And I think it wasn't even on the original uh, CD when it was released. I don't know if it's... That's if right, it's right. It, it never had a... Uh... A proper release, actually. Yeah, I don't think it ever has, which is why I'm actually kind of excited you sent it to me because I know I at least have a have a recording of that. But well, do, you, do you mind? Oh, cool. I was just going to say, do you mind kind of telling us how that how that happened? I guess maybe you were arranging or orchestrating for Eric on the film, and then and then what happened? If I'd like to hear the story. Yes, I mean that's exactly it. Um, I'd done two movies with Eric and Luke Besson, which were Atlantis. And then Leon, which was called The Professional. In right. Wonderful film. Yes. And um, the producers, the Bond producers had seen The Professional and wanted the same team, basically. So Eric came on board as a composer and I came on board as the arranger. Because it was a new Bond. There hadn't been a Bond in the cinema for 10 years, you know. Right. New broom, we want to go radical, we want to go revolutionary. Um, I think the first hint of trouble came when we all went to Paris and Eric played what he'd written for the opening scene, which was the pre-credit scene where Bond is, you know, on a metal staircase and doing all kinds of sort of subterfuge type things. Right. And um, the, the editor was there and he said, do you think this bit could be a bit faster? And Eric said, I like the speed it's at. And I thought, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Then uh, the producer said, I'm not sure I like that noise that's on something or other. 
And Eric said, well, I like it. And he walked out the room. And I thought, it's not going to go very well. Uh-oh, yeah. Yeah, and um, I soon realised, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm there as an orchestrator, and Eric had only really scored for Luke Besson, who he'd been to school with, who accepted everything he did without question. You know, if Eric's done it, it's in the film. Suddenly there were sort of eight cooks on the on the movie all with their own ideas and eric wasn't prepared to listen to any of them so the first thing that happened was they wound up phoning me all the time you know what have we got for this what have we got for that and i said to my agent could you please get them off my back i'm i'm orchestrating eric's music i'm not the composer Mm -hmm. so i then got a phone call a week before the film was released from Pinewood saying, could you come down straight away? And I turned to my friend and said, "Um, I think it's the tank chase, which I didn't work on Eric's version. It was all synthesized. Yeah. I got to Pinewood and I saw the clip with his music and the editor said, I've worked hard on this. If that music stays, my name comes off the film. And then the dubbing editor said the same Holy thing. Holy smokes. It was really, you know, it was quite dramatic. You know? Yes. And uh, Martin Campbell, the director, turned to me and said, um, could you possibly rescore it? And I said, well, the thing is, I know what you want. You know, I've, I've worked out that you want a traditional James Bond moment. And... When do you need it? And they said, well, um, we need, we re, we're opening next Friday. So we really <laughs> need it Tuesday at the latest. This is Friday. <laughs> so oh I gosh. said, well, I can do it, but I need you, first of all, to, to clear it with Eric because he's, you've hired him. You've got to give him first chance at doing it. You know, I, I, I can't just take it over from him. So they rang Eric and he basically said, I'm not going to do it again. I give my blessing. He can go for it, you know. Hmm. And I sat down on the Saturday. I wrote the cue on Saturday. I had three orchestrators standing by on the Sunday. And I thought, when will I ever get the chance to write a sequence for a Bond movie? So I, hmm. I orchestrated the whole thing on the Sunday. It was copied on Monday, recorded on Tuesday. Oh Dumped on Wednesday, and the film came out the Friday. Oh my gosh! And it is so different than what was. Yeah. Because what? What? Because what Eric had written for the Tank Chase is on the CD. It is. And and it, it, it's yeah, for, for, um, it's really different. Yeah, and it's very quirky, and you know, you either love it or hate it, and um, not really well, at all. Yeah, and John Barry, of course, had been so connected to that series i mean even to the point where barbara uh, broccoli one of the producers i'm sure you were dealing with was uh i mean her, her children uh, the 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 godfather of her children is john barry i mean there's just there's a, yeah, yeah. a, a kind of a family kind of a connection and funnily enough at one point um one of the producers said 
in the studio, if I'd known you were this quick, I'd have got you to rescore the whole film. <laughs> thank heavens that didn't happen. But, oh, my uh, goodness. Well, let's uh, thank you for sharing that. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, I, I think we uh, we should take a look at uh, or take a listen to this. It's mm. a it's a fabulous uh, piece of music. This was during a tank chase in St. Petersburg in the film Goldeneye, and it's written by our guest John Altman. There's been a great number of uh, entrepreneurs, if you will, that have helped to bring film music to the masses as a result of their effort, either by releasing long-lost scores that maybe never got a release or re-recording them. One of the giants of that particular kind of an effort is uh, Robert Townsend. Uh, he and I had a fascinating discussion. Our episode uh, on What's the Score was terrific. And what I thought I'd play for you is basically the... His early beginnings, how he got started, and what sparked his uh, idea of starting his own record label. And we talk about some various composers like uh, Elmer Bernstein and Alex North, 
Uh, he, in particular, was a big fan of Jerry Goldsmith, and so that's the cue that we will play when we finish with this clip. But really interesting gentleman and an interesting story that I think you'll enjoy. Let's have a listen. Now, he is without question the most prolific producer of film music recordings. Now, over 1,500 albums, to be exact, uh, and uh, all of them are from the best composers of today in the past. Now, he's worked with, uh, get a load of this list, and composers like Goldsmith, Birds, Bernstein, Mancini, Horner, Barry, Zimmer, and that's just to name a few. And then here recently, out of the blue, he decided to kind of change course a little bit and start producing live concerts of film music all over the world. We're very excited to learn about this man and explore his choices of music. Uh, I'm not exaggerating. This man is a, a giant in the film music world. And uh, as, a, as a result, is really a hero of mine because he's done so much work in uh, releasing, you know, uh, lost scores or previously unavailable scores. And, of course, you know, even current films as well. So I couldn't be more excited about our guest today. I hope all of my listeners will join me in welcoming Robert Townsend to the program. Hi, Robert. Hello, Frank. So happy to be here. I, you know, of course, love recording film music. I love presenting film music in concert. And I love talking about film music. So we have a lot to uh, discuss here. I think. That's right. Well, that's a perfect match then for us. Um, and I must tell the listeners, too, uh, this I sometimes throw around this phrase. I always love it. The hardest working man in show business. Well, this this guy, you're up in, up in that kind of a class. It's taken us, what, a couple of months, I think, to finally squeeze in a time when you could talk with us. So I'm really grateful for you making time. Um, um, my I usually, Yeah, I, I usually start our programs with just asking our guests to tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you grew up and family and you know, kind of the early years, that kind of stuff. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, of course, originally from Canada, I'm a Canadian, grew up just outside of Toronto. And at a time where I was discovering film music through, well, really discovering a symphony orchestra through the film scores of Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams and what they were writing in the late 1970s. So for mm -hmm. John, it was Star Wars and Superman. For Jerry, it was Star Trek and Alien. And it opened my eyes and ears to the whole world of what was being done in film music. I would you know, very quickly after that start to discover other composers, uh, you know, Alex North, George Delarue, Elmer Bernstein, mm -hmm. and, and then more scores each of, of Jerry's and John's at a very... Uh, quick pace and so it was very exciting and eye-opening and a thrilling time to discover film music and uh and then very quickly kind of transition to my voracious appetite for all of this music and what i was hearing but also with it not being kind of you know quenched with what was available and realizing that some of my favorite scores that were being written at the time, um, you know, by this time into the early uh, 1980s, a score of Jerry Goldsmith's for uh, The Final Conflict, a, a mm -hmm. 20th Century Fox film, the third of the Omen films. Also a movie he did for Universal, a small film called Raggedy Man. Neither of those received soundtrack releases. John Williams scored a film called Heartbeeps for Universal. Had an album planned on MCA, but then canceled. This was the score he wrote in between uh, e Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. Okay. 
Elmer Bernstein had gone five years without a, a score release. So looking back, it was certainly not a good time for film music releases. And then that became the groundwork that really inspired me to ultimately create my own label, realizing that maybe I should just stop waiting for someone else to release these scores that I (laughs) wanted and just do it myself. And as simple as that, that's what I did. I established Masters of Film Music. Yeah, I mean, looking back, I can't believe you know the 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 sequence of events that just is um you know inspired well it makes sense the the events that inspired it but that i actually pulled it off and um <laughs> and just you know went for it yeah the, you make it sound really simple but it uh, i suspect there were a lot of bumps along the way well it i mean there was a lot to the process of you know establishing the the label itself uh, establishing a relationship with 20th Century Fox, establishing a relationship with Jerry Goldsmith, setting up a distribution network and infrastructure with Varez Saraband Records, which existed at the time, you know, in a different form, of course, than it than it grew to become mm-hmm. in late in later years. But this is all happening in 1986, 85-86. And um and then pulling all of that together, I uh line things up for my first soundtrack release, which ultimately was Jerry Goldsmith's The Final Conflict, one of the scores that inspired me to do this in the first place, Hmm. and put together that release, which uh, came out in uh, in April of of 1986, when I was 19 years old. And and so I had my first album with Jerry Goldsmith and uh, established the label. And uh, away we went. You know, from that point on, there was just no looking back. That was the that's yeah, amazing. We, I, that was going to be one of my questions was how old were you when this all got started? And I, that's phenomenal. A 19 year old, a teenager starts his own label and starts establishing relationships with these giants in the film music industry. That's just phenomenal. And starting at the top, literally with Jerry Goldsmith. And, yeah. and, and the beautiful thing too, is Jerry was so supportive and, and it was, you know, the beginning of, of a, a lifelong, uh, you know, friendship and, and relationship, uh, between us where he and I would, um, ultimately do over 80 albums together, plus concerts of, of his music and, and recordings of Alex North's music and so many things over, you know, over the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. I worked with him from, from that point on through to his, you know, what ended up being his, his last score, which was Looney Tunes back in action. And, um, and then the, not a day goes by where I don't think of him today. And I'm always looking for opportunities to program his music and the concerts I produce. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, uh, a legend forever, a master of film music and, uh, an inspiration to so many. And certainly, cer- certainly to me. Yeah. You know, and, and I want to talk about him a little bit later in the program, but I, I'm just, I'm thinking of myself or, and I'm sure anybody else could, that's listening to, to think about what a, an incredible, uh, I don't even, words escape me to be someone who is over the top of a fan of this genre and of, of certain composers in particular to going from not just being a fan, but to actually working closely with them is, you know what an what an amazing opportunity you created for yourself. So that's terrific. It was it was extraordinary at the time, and looking back, 
you know, it's it's maybe even harder to believe now that it played out the way it did than it did at the time when it was just that that's just what was happening. And, and now. So you, you know, you kind of accept um, your own life at the time. It's uh, it's it's playing out.
One of the giants in uh, Film Score podcasts is a gentleman by the name of Eric Woods. I discovered him and found his podcast and his knowledge of film scores very impressive. And uh, so he was an obvious choice for a guest on the program, and so we had a delightful chat. The clip I'm going to play for you uh, has to do with his love for the film score of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So we talk a little bit about that, and then we play a cue from it. And I must say that Eric has been a real help to me. He's been very helpful when I've asked for advice and uh, really grateful for that and really delighted to be able to share uh, his appearance on the program on the 100th episode. So let's hear from Eric Woods. I think anybody that knows me uh, would be disappointed if I didn't play anything from Raiders of the Lost Ark because it's my, it's my favorite movie of all time. It's my favorite score of all time. Um, but I didn't want to play just any old cue like you know everybody's heard the raiders march a million times over it's still like one of the greatest things i've ever heard but but you know this is a it's an incredible incredibly personal film to me uh, it was one of the very first movies i ever saw um I, I connect this with to my mother um all the time because i was i was seven eight years old i was sick home from school on a monday and I, you know, I wasn't really feeling well. And my mom came to me and she says, Hey, I think I have something that might make you feel better. Now at that time, you know, it's the eighties, uh, you know, we, you'd have to go out and rent a, a beta machine or a VHS machine in order to watch movies. And we, we would rent one and a couple of movies, uh, during, during the weekend. And, um, I, I didn't know Raiders Lost Ark was one of the movies that they, they rented, but so my mom, you know, seeing that I'm not feeling well, she's like, Hey, come on down. I think this might make you feel better. So we went down to the basement, sat there, turned this movie on. And I was just blown away, blown away. I, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I was like, what is this? it just felt so, it felt so adult to me. You know, I'm so used to, you know, watching, you know, kids movies and comedies and things of that sort. And this one was something else. It just exploded off our tiny little screen and the music made such an impression that you know this experience stuck with me for forever and i've experienced the film you know hundreds of times and uh it just still is one of the most rewarding things i ever had a chance to to watch and it it took until a couple of years ago for me to finally see it on the big screen 
And it was, it was the best experience because I saw it for the first time on the big screen live with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra during one of the, one of those live and concert shows. And I got to experience it with my son and I wanted to bring my mom badly, but, um, Liam, my son wanted to go. And so I thought, you know, what a great way to, um, introduce him to this, to this movie. And he saw it when he was very young, but he didn't really re- remember much of it. And he's seen a couple of uh, symphony concerts with us, but this is a time where, oh man, it was about four years ago when we got to go see it. And it was an incredible experience. And it was the best way for me to finally see it on the big screen. And I, I was listening to my favorite score of all time, play from start to finish live, something I'd never thought I'd ever experience. I was hearing things that I, I'd never heard before. And I got to experience this track, Map Room Dawn, which has one of the, the grand statements of the arc theme, uh, and with little sprinkles of the medallion theme in there as well. But what's so great about this cue is I, th- I think it's a, it's a film composer's dream. It's a scene that is almost devoid of any dialogue. And so music plays an incredible um, or an important role in the narrative. And for this three minutes, you know, John Williams has to, you know, build on the drama and even the suspense as well, because it's a very time sensitive thing for Indy to, to find the location of the arc. And Williams just builds this piece and builds this piece until again, you have this incredible climax when the sun finally hits the medallion and shows on the map room floor where, where the arc truly is Indy smiling. And it's just this, this huge orchestral choral cue which i think there's a triangle like ringing around in, in the background it's just the london symphony has never sounded better and it just again it's 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 an incredibly emotional moment and just even talking about it, it it's just i got goosebumps on my arms right now frank i tell you my arms my my hair is just standing on end and i think that besides the raiders march or even the desert chase the, one of the greatest action cues of all time this might very well be the the best cue written for an indiana jones film well, I was going to say that, can you imagine, you know, Michael Kahn editing this with Steven Spielberg and they've cut this scene together and Spielberg's, yep, that that's it. And like, that's it. I mean, really it is flat, but I'm pretty sure that Spielberg probably turned to Kahn and said, well, just wait until you hear what Johnny has written for this scene. And I'm pretty sure they both looked at each other, nodded and went on to the next scene because Williams owns this scene and any chance I think that any composer like, you know, Jerry Goldsmith for the enterprise, you know, you get a scene where there's no dialogue and your music gets a chance to soar. Composers take great advantage of this situation. It's a lot of trust, especially back then, you know, you didn't have mock-ups. Yeah. And, and you, you knew that going to the, to the recording stages were the first time you're going to hear this thing in full and you better hope it works, but you have to trust your composer. And that's why, you know, Williams and Spielberg and Zemeckis, Silvestri all have, you know, great relationships because they trust each other.
The next clips I wanted to play are from a fairly recent guest. Her name was uh, Holly Mulcahy. Uh, she's a master violinist that's played with some of the finest symphony orchestras in the United States. She also happens to love film music as well, and so we had a really interesting conversation about classical music as well as film music. The two clips I want to share with you are uh, one talking about one of her favorite uh, scores from a film called Wild Things, written by composer George Clinton. Now, she and George are connected in the fact that uh, George has written a concerto here recently called The Rose of Sonora, uh, where she plays a prominent role playing violin uh, on this uh, concerto. So she picked this particular cue, and then we switch gears a little bit, and we start talking about John Barry's music, and she chooses a piece, a cue that would be entirely different from the one that we played from uh, Wild Things. So it shows her a wide variety of likes in terms of film music. So I hope you enjoy both of these cues, and uh, let's uh, sit back and have a listen. The next cue we were going to play is, it's one of my favorite scores. I would, I could easily put this in my top 20, maybe even my, my top 10, I don't know. And a lot of my listeners will be surprised when I say this. Because it's kind of quirky and weird, but boy, does it work for the movie, and it's a very listenable on CD. The film I'm talking about is Wild Things, and it's written by, who we've talked about here just before, uh, composer George Clinton. Uh, this is going to be the end title sequence. Tell me a little bit about uh, why you wanted to choose that to, to share with our audience today. Yeah, this much like Matrix, when I heard Wild Things, I had to buy the CD. <laughs> yeah, the I'm the same way. Yep, I'm uh, the same way. Guilty, guilty pleasure. I, it, when you listen to it, you know, you just get the feeling of the movie. You don't even have to know what the movie's about, but you instantly, you know, understand when you listen to the when you listen to the various cues in this thing. It's dirty. It's sultry. It's dangerous. It's a mis mysterious. It's wrong. It's creepy, and it's so perfect for this. Um, this movie, and if if your listeners, they probably know, but if they don't know, it you know it starts off in this kind of a swampy kind of Everglades um, scene, and and you get this sultry, rich, warm, humid feel um, yeah. in in the thing. But the the very opening of the the vocal solo just it sets the entire mood. It's like, where's this going to go? And that's the mood you have through the whole movie when you're watching it. Where's this going to go? It's it's a big question to me yeah I mean it's and it's one of these I mean there's a lot of scores that, that that fit this description but what I do like about it is that not only does it work perfectly for the film in in my view it's great as a standalone experience as well and you can't say that for all film scores absolutely absolutely and the way that George uses the percussion and the the, oh. the bass you know the sliding and it just everything is so delicious and so on point with with um, you know getting an emotion and getting a, a feel. I mean, I almost feel like I should be smoking a cigarette when I, when I watch this. And I don't smoke, but I mean, you just like instantly feel about a thousand percent cooler than you you really ought to be when you're listening to this music. What a great description! I can't I can't top that. Let's uh, <laughs> let's have a listen for ourselves. This is again from the film Wild Things, and it's written by composer George Clinton.
Okay, we've mentioned this already once before, and of course my listeners will know I'm delighted to share this one as well. Uh, you mentioned that when you were a small child of six, that you watched a film called Moonraker. Yes. And uh, one of the cues that you wanted to share from that film uh, is a favorite of mine, and it's a theme that was used several times throughout the series, written by John Barry. Uh, the original theme was just called simply 007, but in the film Moonraker, it's referred to as Boat Chase. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to choose that uh, particular cue. Well, once again, it it's really hard to pick any John Barry cues because they're all so good. Yeah. Um, I This was a big nostalgia one for me just because it captured a lot of, you know, the essence of all the the James Bond films, the best. Um, this one just, it, it, for me, is typical Barry, um, where he, he captures some kind of a, a, a cheeky, a cheekiness, um, if you will, to the the action scene. Um, I don't know if this cue would work in a modern day action scene, but it sure works in the boat chase in in Moonraker and the the other similar similar spots. I think this was used in in um, what uh, Thunderball as well, if I recall. Well, yeah, it was originally used in For Much with Love. Then he reused That's it right. in Thunderball. And then yeah. he reused it in uh, Diamonds Are Forever, and then finally Moonraker. But, but it all took on a different flavor. It was very much, uh, it was a lot brassier in its earlier versions. And of course, this one in Moonraker is more symphonic, for lack of a better way of saying it. And it's a little slower than yeah. the, the others. I don't yeah, know, I just like it. <laughs> yeah, and yet I think it works in every film. It works just fine. So I read somewhere where he was inspired by the Magnificent Seven with the, the beats in the Magnificent Seven that that was used for this. Could so. very well be the case. I, I've not read that, but I, I wouldn't doubt you on that. <laughs> that, that. That makes sense. That makes sense. Well, let's, uh, let's have a listen for ourselves. This again is from the uh, film called Moonraker. The cue is referred to as Boat Chase, and it's written by, in my opinion, the maestro John Barry. of my uh, 99 episodes that I've done here for What's the Score was talking with uh, musician Mike Lang, uh, just a, a world-class keyboard artist, 
one of the best known, most revered, and respected uh, session musicians in Los Angeles. He worked on a variety of different film scores, and we talked about some of his work with John Barry, which I was obviously interested in, but I was also interested in his work on another film uh, that I liked, and the score in particular that I liked, and the film was called uh, The Russia House. Music was written by Jerry Goldsmith. And Mike shared an incredible story about uh, the recording sessions that took place there for Russia House and how that all went about. And uh, I think you'll enjoy it. It's a very entertaining story. Uh, We'll play that clip with Mike and then obviously the music that we were talking about, the end titles from that film. Enjoy. Uh, The film I'm talking about is Russia House and the uh, composer is Jerry Goldsmith. Um, gosh, I loved the score, but, but the end titles just, I, I almost still get goosebumps about it. It's just, and it goes on and on forever, which I think is part of your story behind it because, uh, I, I loved the, uh, I loved how it just kind of continued and there were different versions of the theme that kind of permeated throughout the entire, uh, entire piece. So tell us a little bit about, uh, the background on that particular cue or that, that recording session with Jerry on uh, Russia house. So the Russia House with Jerry Goldsmith was a really unique uh, uh, moment for me in my career and a unique moment for me with Jerry Goldsmith. And Jerry Goldsmith and I had a lot of unique moments because um, he was one of these guys, if he liked you, he liked to mess with you. That was his (laughs) way of being affectionate. So he would always, there was always this little uh, uh, acerbic kind of, attitude he would have with me sometimes. Um, but on so many occasions, he would tell me how special that I was to uh, put up with all his stuff. And, and <laughs> you know, it, just, it, it, it was a very personal relationship. We didn't spend a lot of time together apart from just going to, to work with him, but it was just, he always made me feel appreciated in a way that I, I will cherish forever. So he called me one day and he said, Mike, he said, I need you to come over to my house, my studio. I'm doing a demo for a movie and it's got some jazz stuff in it and I need you to help me get get it done. And I had never done that for him. I'd never been to his studio to work with him. So so I went over there and he said, um, he says, so uh, the director uh, wants a jazz thing as part of the score and I've hired Branford Marsalis to play soprano saxophone and Branford I was very much aware of. Uh, and uh, he's a great musician. Oh yeah. We talked. We talked about other musicians in the rhythm section, and uh, well, actually, there was no drums to be. He just wanted to talk about bass players, and he ended up with John Patitucci, who was one of the best jazz bass players uh, of our time. So, uh, so anyway, he at the time he had me coming to his house. The idea was going to be that it would be soprano saxophone, and then he wanted to use like uh, a DX7, which is a synthesizer, Yamaha DX7 doing sort of that version of a Fender Rhodes electric piano, which was very different from the electric piano sound itself. It was its own character sound. And he wanted to have like a fretless electric bass. So he he didn't really have those sounds and he didn't really have the facility to play them the way a jazz musician would play them. So that's why I was there to create all of this. So it was a bit of a challenge because, you know, back in 1990, it wasn't like we had pristine samples that sounded exactly like instruments. So, um, so he talked to me about, um, the, well, there was one funny thing he said. So he says, you know, cause Jerry actually 
was the only composer that I can think of way back then that owned synthesizers and knew the synthesizers the way we as players knew them. So mm. when when you go to do a typical film with Jerry and he'd have two or three keyboard players, um, all of the electronic sounds, he had cartridges and way of giving us the sounds. So we didn't create the sounds. And for most films, we were sort of like synthesizer orchestrators or synth synthestrators, if you will. You <laughs> you go to a film and you'd look at, you know, bar one and it would say um, dark, ambient, uh, slowly moving uh you know, biting sound. And so we had to think of what that was musically and the timbre of it and come up with it. And then the composer would say, well, yeah, well, that's pretty close, but how about if you do this or do that? And you'd arrive at what it was going to be. So with Gary, it was none of that. You know, it was always there. But now he was asking me for these sounds and he kind of, he said sarcastically, he said, he says, so word has it around town that you have this really cool DX7 Fender Road sound, which, which was true, but not in some big way. It wasn't like everybody word, thought of me. Word around town. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> that was his way. You know, I'm not sure I got the exact words, but that's, that was the way he would speak to me about it. You know? And I said, well, Jerry, I don't have my sounds here. So if you have a DX7 library and you have a bunch of electronic piano sounds, I usually take two DX7s that are both monaural and I pan them 45 degrees, you know, left and right. And I use two sounds that sort of interact with each other. And I add reverb and chorusing depending on the situation. So anyway, he had all that, we got it together and I played him the sound and I said, how's this? And I thought, you know, we're in the ballpark. And he looked at me and he said, I hate you. <laughs> well, so, yeah, and this was way, even once when I was talking to his wife, Carol, she said, Jerry would never say that. And I said, Carol, he didn't mean it. He just, <laughs> it's, it's his sense of humor. I, I, I get it totally. I do. I get it. And, and she, she's Jerry, she said, Jerry never hated anything. I said, I know. Well, he didn't hate me. He was just messing with me because he didn't hate me. So, so, so anyway, when he said that, I, this is my typical kind of way of dealing with him. I said, well, that's okay. You can hate me, but how's the sound? <laughs> and he said, that's the reason I hate you. <laughs> okay. And I knew where he's going with this, but I just said, okay, so you hate me because you hate the sound. Is that it? No. He says, I hate you because I like the sound <laughs> and you like the sound and hate me because. And he said, because I didn't create it. He said, Mike, I create all my own sounds, but you did this. <laughs> so I, I didn't let it go. I said, well, you know, Jerry, if you want screen credit for creating the sound, I'm happy to relinquish it, you know. <laughs> so, so anyway, so we got all of that done. And the reason I'm telling you part of this is because it translated into another aspect, which is so now we're at uh, Sony recording with Big Orchestra and the concept had changed. It was no longer the great Fender Road sound that he hated uh, or hated me for. And it was no longer the electric bass. And it was no, but it was a soprano sax. And let me tell you, of all the things I had to record during the demo, trying to make a believable soprano saxophone sound with the kind of technology that was available then, that was the hardest thing of all. I bet. Because, you know, synthetic saxophones were like, a joke. So, but what I did to make it sound expressive was I used the pitch bend wheel and the vibrato to add expression to the melody to take your ear away from the sound. So 
I tried to stylize the performance so that you didn't think about the sound and you thought about, oh, that's kind of cool the way that note banter, that, you know, whatever. So, so anyway, so we're on the session and now I'm playing piano and John Patitucci's playing upright bass and, and Branford's playing soprano. And, uh, and I was introduced to him and he was the nicest guy in the world. We got to do a few things after that project. So I've remained friends with him and really a big fan. And so, so we record the main title that had this jazz theme in it, which you hear in the end credits. Uh-huh. And Jerry always kind of liked me to go into the booth when he was doing playbacks because he would like to sometimes ask me or whatever. He'd want to have me there just in case there was something he wanted to tell me. Yeah. So we're there and we're playing it. It sounds really good. And, and, he, and he calls me over. He says, Mike, I, come here. I said, yeah, Jerry, what is it? He said, you know, um, I don't like the way Branford's playing the melody. And, and I'm thinking about it, and it sounded great to me. It sounded very straightforward and beautiful, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, well, what don't you like about it? And he said, well, you did all this kind of cool stuff on the synthesizer, and he's not doing anything like that. It's too straight. And, and I said, well, just he's probably so uh, thrilled to be here playing for you, and he's probably thinking he's playing a melody on a, on a film that he's not supposed to fool around with it. Just ask him to loosen it up or do whatever. You, he'll do anything you want, I'm sure, and he can do it. And he looks at me, he says, you tell him. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I said, Jerry, I said, I just met him. I can't tell him. And Jerry says, I just met him too. I said, yes, Jerry, but there's a difference. You engaged him. He's working for you and it's your music and it's inappropriate for me to tell him anything. And Jerry didn't say anything. And so we walk out of the booth into the, the recording room and we were in front of the whole orchestra and Jerry put his arm around me, which made me a little concerned about what's this about. Uh-huh. He has his arm around me. He yells across the orchestra to Branford, who was set up in the back near where the piano was. says, hey, Branford, Mike has something to tell you. I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. I mean, I just, oh, that's the whole idea is to laugh because I mean, <laughs> when you think about what is it that was really memorable about playing in the studios, this is the stuff that makes it all worthwhile. This is the humanity of it. You know, during the period when there was so much recording going in LA for decades, I would go from one job to another, you know, four days on a movie, then television recording three, three hours, four hour sessions, and then recording with art artists of every different kind of music, you know, art yeah. artists, pop artists, jazz artists, you know, playing classical music in a film, playing on electric keyboards, playing on acoustic keyboards. But the thing that made it so wonderful were moments like this, you know? So I'm so happy that, uh, that in, in my little, uh, um, how can I put it? Microscopic biographic moment with you that, you know, we have these <laughs> moments that kind of define the thing that made it really special to have a life like this. So that's what well, I wanted to say. And, uh, and the, the, the cue is just, it's magical folks. It truly is. I mean, I, I want to just go on about the cue because there's something very important to say about it, which okay. When we got to the uh, this end title, this is where the most full-blown jazz example of playing with improvisation took place. Mm. And it felt, it's just the trio at some point. It's just Branford, myself, and John playing. And we're playing this thing that has uh, repeats around it, and they were going to do a fade ending. 
And it felt so good. We just kept playing. I think it was my fault for kept pushing the comping and keeping it going. And we probably played an additional two or three minutes, you know. Mm, I can I can sense that, yep. And I, I, I will never forget when it was over, Sandy DeCressa, the contractor, she came out of the booth and came all the way across the room. As long as I've known her and as many wonderful, uh, you know, films we've done together and she was such a supporter of mine she came over and just said that she went to me to tell me how special it was you know and that it just had that effect on everybody in the booth and the director liked the music so much if any of you get a chance to see the film after these remarks he reprised the video of the film just to let the music play. You'll see wow. the credits are going on. It goes back. I think they're at an airport or there's a plane or something. I can't <laughs> remember. And so that was a, something that never happened before or after that in my life. The ultimate compliment, I'm sure. I mean, it's... Yeah. Well, it wasn't just me. It was Branford and John and the chemistry. And, wow. and his theme is just gorgeous. It is, it is. Let, 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 let's let our audience kind of experience it for themselves. This is a... This is the end titles from the film called uh, Russia House. Uh, it's uh, written by Jerry Goldsmith. It features Branford Marcellus on the saxophone, but it also features our guest, Mike Lang. Sit back, relax, and enjoy.
100 episodes. I still can't believe it. I'm so grateful to so many people. And before I play the last clip, I wanted to acknowledge some of the past guests that we've had. Not all of them, and that doesn't mean I think any less of what their contribution has been, but there are some people I want to single out that I thought were really interesting to talk to, and I was really grateful for them taking the time to be able to uh, talk with me and share their personal favorites in film music. People I'm talking about like David Zariski or Joseph Darlington, composer Lee Holdridge, musician Ron Lang, film historian Stephen J. Rubin, very kind to me on that, uh, documentarian John Cork recently, good friend Terry Wallstrom, good friend John Alty, Raymond Benson, who's a film historian as well and has written many great books, great guest. Steve Wilson, who um, is just, he's just a film score aficionado, but is extremely bright and knowledgeable. He's really helped the program out quite a bit. A good friend, Doug Lacey, who uh, has provided a lot of technical assistance, I guess I would say, uh, and has been a good friend. Bill Koenig, Tony Weeks, a great friend, been very supportive, appreciate it. Composer Jeff Beal, composer Greg uh, Safin. I, I mean, I just still, and the list just goes on. I can't believe the quality of guests that I've been able to get. And I also can't believe the quality of the, the uh, listeners that I've been able to get as well. I have to thank all of you for being uh, devoted to the program and listening to it. My sincere thanks to all listeners and also to and a special thanks to my patrons that uh, support the program through patreon.com. As we end this program, I had to end it only one way, and that was simply this. Um, I guess you might say my favorite episode, the one that I spent the most time on, uh, and was the most personal, was an interview that I was lucky enough to do with composer John Barry in 1981. And I won't rehash all the reasons why I hadn't released it before, but uh, suffice to say, I was just a... I was a fanboy, and I just... And I was like, what, 23 years old or something like that, and so I sounded quite a bit different. But the interview was a, you know, once-in-a-lifetime experience and something certainly on my bucket list. So I thought I'd end this program with uh, how that interview ended. So once again, thanks for all of your support. 100 episodes, I'm very proud, and I appreciate all the support everybody has provided. And I can promise you there's still more to come. Here's the clip I promised of my interview with composer John Barry. As we were wrapping up, he provided his mailing address and... We briefly talked about living on Long Island and Oyster Bay and how much he enjoyed that. And then, then he extended an invitation I'll never forget. Did you get up to New York? Uh, I, I'm hoping that I will. I've got some friends, especially in Connecticut, that I like to go up and spend some time with. Yeah. Uh, I try to make it up there once a year. Yeah. That would be a... Oh, I'd love... When you come up, give me a call in advance. Okay. And uh, let me know. We're trying to get together have, a, have a, a dinner or a lunch in New York. I don't have many regrets, but I do wish I could have made that lunch date. Several years passed, and when I finally was going to New York, I, I did call. His wife, Lori, answered the phone, and she was definitely his gatekeeper. How did I get that? How did I get this number? What is it that I want? And so on.
She said he was working and that she never disturbed him when he was working. So I, I never tried again, even though I made several trips to New York from that time. So there you have it, the, uh, the unknown interview. Hardly insightful, but a, a dream of mine that came true. I did finally meet him at uh, Carnegie Hall years later when there was a concert being held to celebrate his 70th birthday. I happened to be actually sitting pretty close to him. So I approached him and introduced myself. And again, he was just as nice and as gracious as he could be. And at least I got to shake the man's hand. And that meant a lot to me. Unfortunately, there were strict rules about no pictures being allowed in the, at the event. And that's one picture I, I wish I could have had. I hope you've enjoyed this little bit of my personal history. Hopefully you've gained some insight into the man and his incredible talent and career. Or perhaps it was just nice to hear something new from him. The hours I put into this are worth it. And believe me, it's been an effort. But it was worth it for me and, and I hope it was for you too. And that uh, wraps up this episode of What's the Score? I want to thank you so much for listening and supporting the program. We've really been growing a lot here recently. I'm grateful for that. And please share it with others to help us grow our audience. We're on Podbean, but we're also on iTunes and Stitcher and more to come. So until next time, there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening. So what's the score?